0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Data Center Frontier Show. I'm Rich Miller, the editor of Data Center Frontier. One of the big trends we've been following is the impact of large global investors on the growth of the data center industry. This surge of investment has brought some amazing new scale to data center facilities and campuses and helped the industry expand its footprint across the globe. One of the companies that has featured prominently in this growth is NTT Global Data Centers, which is in the midst of a building boom in major markets across the United States. Our guest today is Steve Lim, the Senior Vice President of Marketing for NTT Global Data Centers, who has had a front row seat for this enormous growth and shares his take on some of the trends and markets playing a role in NTT's growth story. Here's our conversation with Steve Lim of NTT Global Data Centers.
1: I think you'll enjoy it.
0: Steve, welcome to the Data Center Frontier Show.
1: Great, thank you, Rich, happy to be here.
0: I think a good starting point would be to talk a little bit about uh, your NTT and uh, how it has progressed over the past couple of years. Uh, Just a few years ago, uh, your outfit was known in the US as Raging Wire Data Centers. Talk a little bit about the journey from Raging Wire to to NTT Global and uh, what that has looked like.
1: Yeah, it's uh, oh, so so. This is a multi-hour podcast, then. So we've got lots lots to cover on that. Uh, mm-hmm. I can I I could try and summarize a little bit of it, but it's been a it's been a really really interesting journey. Uh, I think some some of your audience out there probably knows parts of the story, but Raging Wire has been around for uh, twenty years, uh, started in California, was primarily retail focused, um, and has kind of grown into more of an enterprise data center over the last many years. Over the last last four years uh, in in my time here, we have been really focused on bringing together all of the data center companies that NTT has owned for a number of years, but had let and left to run independently until about, uh, I guess about three years now, uh, where NTT said, hey, let's really truly globalize that and create what we call NTT global data centers, which is division within NTT more broadly, uh, and let's see about creating Centralization of, of the business as opposed to running each one separately. And so at that time, Raging Wire, along with uh, in Europe, uh, NTT owned eShelter and Gyron uh, and in, uh, in India, a company called NetMagic. Uh, and then across our NTT comms platform in Asia, we had a number of, of data centers. And so we brought all of those together and, and put a team together to, to try and f- figure out and focus on delivering uh, data center services to our clients on a global basis, whereas before in RagingWire, we were very focused on, on uh, you know, one market, two market, three market. Now we're looking at uh, in excess of 20. I think we're in 22 markets now, as we continue to grow 20 plus markets uh, around the globe uh, and adding more frequently. And so, um, you know, it's been a really interesting journey. We're we're not done. Uh, the announcement that we made over the last six months is that we're now going to do a secondary integration with NTT Limited which we are part of now, with NTT Data, uh, which everyone kind of said, well, you guys are already one company, right? But in practice, we were actually still functioning as two companies. NTT Data was more focused on the consulting services side of things, and NTT Limited was was more product and offerings uh, around connectivity internet, obviously data center, security, and other things like that. And so uh, we will go through another integration in FY23 as we bring that together. Uh, We will all then be branded actually under the NTT data moniker. Uh, So we'll have a slight change uh, from a naming perspective, but it should be a really good adventure. And it's been fun when you think about NTT you know, having its roots in in telecommunications and networking and connectivity, from our perspective, we're very excited to be the data center provider, the infrastructure sitting beneath that, and then having the ability to offer additional services and and uh, you know offerings to our clients that a lot of our pure play uh, data center providers competitors don't offer. And so uh, you'll see a lot more of that in the coming you know days, weeks, and and years uh, as NTT really formulates that strategy. Strategy and that go to market. But it's an ex- exciting place to be, you know, knowing the place the data center sits today, and then looking at how we can integrate that with offering more to our clients.
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting that in a way, uh, the raging wire and then the transition to NTT really uh, was a little bit early on a trend that we've seen on a much larger scale, which is providers that are succeeding uh, on a certain scale, connecting with global, financially strong outfits that can bring more resources to the game and essentially uh, help bring a scale to the next level. Uh, and I know when, I, I think it was early 2020 when the NTT Global Data Centers platform was kind of announced, and right along with it came a commitment to, hey, we're going to put X billions of dollars. I, I, it, was a, it was a big whopping number. Seven, work.
1: seven billion.
0: Seven billion. That was yeah. my recollection. I'm like, yep. really? seven billion. But, um, but that is uh, obviously is a, a major factor in all the the building that has gone on since. Tell me a little bit about how, not just you know NTT's visibility, but uh, its ability to support growth uh, has uh, factored into the way that the company has matured in the Americas.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we focus just in the Americas, um, you know, I think you you hit on the key topic, which is you know, Raging Wire, as, as I mentioned, you know, started as as a single market retail provider, uh, and and grew to you know, I think three markets initially, and and then moved into the enterprise business a little bit more, started doing slightly larger deployments, and and uh, over the last three to four years, we've been doing you know, still serving both of those markets, but adding in the hyperscale market and and doing very very large scale deployments for the hyperscale providers. And, and so that evolution, you know, obviously requires you to, to grow and build at a much larger scale. Uh, you know, the first building in, in Sacramento, CA1, that the that the team put together was, uh, you know, in the teens in terms of megawatts. And, and now as 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 with others, right, we're not unique, certainly, but everything is being built uh, in 30 megawatt chunks, and 50 megawatt chunks. You know, campuses now are looking at, at hundreds of megawatts. And so building at that Scale requires a great deal of capital. Uh, having NTT, uh, you know, or being part of NTT, you know, we can start to make those financial decisions faster and at a scale that, candidly, you know, without them, we would not be able to do uh, what we're doing today. And so that's exciting. You know, I think you you, you alluded to in 2019, 2020, we had announced globally uh, a seven billion dollar investment. Um, you know, in expanding our data center footprint around the globe, um, we've since added. Um, more Multiple numbers to that. Um, you know, I'm not not, uh, not in a position today, unfortunately, to give the specific numbers. But but continuing to spend at a very very rapid pace. It, you know, in the U.S. alone, we've got uh, additional buildings and and uh, construction starts going in essentially all of our markets. Um, you know, outside of California primarily, but in in Hillsboro and Oregon, in and Chicago, in Texas, in Phoenix, and Virginia we are planning to build in all of those locations next year where, uh, you know, and I I pause as I say that because, you know, in the past we would say, okay, next year we'll build in Chicago. And and then after that, we'll build in Phoenix. We've now moved to a point where we are building simultaneously in all of those markets. And and, and that's kind of a wild thing to think about when you go back even five, six years ago.
0: Yeah, that's pretty crazy uh, trying to to be doing all of that at once. But uh, as we've seen, the growth of the internet and the way that people use digital services obviously accelerated during the pandemic. Everybody needed uh, the data centers to be a a sort of a digital lifeline to all the things that moved online. And it doesn't seem to have have slowed too much since things have settled down on the the spread of COVID, but there's still all sorts of uh, activity online that's channeled through these data centers. Now for NTT, uh, you guys have as you mentioned, sort of established beachheads in a bunch of uh, markets with very large campuses. I wanted to take a minute and take a look at some of these markets and get your take on what the the business looks like there and what the prospects are kind of moving ahead, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: I thought I would start with, uh, well, everybody starts with Northern Virginia. So let's do that. (laughs) That's one of the, the more intriguing markets now. Uh, as Raging Wire, you started with two sort of individual retrofit data centers and then the big new campus. Now you've got a lot of space on that uh, on our campus. Uh, tell me what the, the things look like now and what you have planned.
1: Yeah, so, so we have a large campus, as, as you alluded to, but I will say we are quickly, um, you know, hitting the, the, the capacity of that campus. Uh, we've got one building under construction. We've got um, one, uh, you know, in the design and development stage. We've got two additional buildings that, that we're actually working on a very specific plan for those two buildings. And then I think we've got capacity for one more on that campus. And so we're actually hitting capacity at that first campus. And, and that's kind of a, 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 an amazing thing to say, uh, you know, even if I go back four years, when I joined uh, Raging Wire at the time, it felt like we had a long, long runway uh, on that first campus. And, and it has uh, uh, quickly been been gobbled up, as we've talked about with the growth. As a result, we've, we've already purchased our next campus, which I think you, you're aware of, and we've announced, and, and uh, you know, moving down out of Ashburn into Prince William County. And so we're working on the development for that that campus as kind of the next piece and we'll start on that one as well. And so so we, we believe in that market, I think everyone does. I think that's not even uh, a, a debatable commentary, but I will say it is a fascinating market. It is so massive and continues to grow like mad. Uh, I think the two things that are interesting, and certainly you have uh, insight into this and probably thoughts on this as well. One is is for the first time we're starting to see power uh, and power availability being a discussion, uh, you know, particularly in Ashburn, uh, particularly with Dominion in the short term, and so that's one of the things that that we have to take into account, not just in Virginia but other markets, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, and then the second thing is is the literal availability of land. Historically, everyone, has been in Ashburn and been right there Um, and uh, at this point in a lot of ways we're kind of tapped out from a land perspective and so one of the discussions that that has been you know up and debated is where is that next hub Uh, what is that location now we've we've bet on Prince William County being uh, a little bit farther south if I've got my geography right Uh, right. you know um, uh, in Virginia I'll apologize as as the California kid trying to get my my east coast (laughs) geography right as I think you know, there's been the discussion of, you know, is it Manassas? Is it, you know, is it farther south? Is it, you know, closer to where the subsea cablings are in the Virginia Beach area? I think it'll still stay centered around Ashburn, and, and that's one of the reasons we like Prince William County, but it's going to be interesting to see kind of how it expands beyond just Ashburn.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to, to that is probably a little bit of all of the above. What,
1: <laughs> you're probably right.
0: What, what we've been writing about is uh, the sub that emerge off of Ashburn. And some of that has to do with the availability of land because that's been an issue, uh, at least in thinking at campus scale for a little while now. Prince William obviously has gotten a lot of that. uh, But now there's also the the power component of that. And there's another piece of that, which is that so much of how the hyperscalers view the world right now is through availability zones and regions. If you're going to have you know your sort of uh, center point of the cloud in Data Center Alley in Ashburn. What are the sa- satellite locations where you might stage availability zones? Yep. because so many people pack into uh, Northern Virginia for all of that, uh, which creates sort of uh, some interesting opportunities for uh, <laughs> for economic development. As an as an example, uh, you know we're we're seeing uh, projects much further south in Virginia. We're seeing them in Maryland. Uh, and I think the, the question that's always of interest to me, and I, I, I'm curious if you have any uh, insights into this, is how does this uh, influence what gets built where and when? Obviously, you know, there's some limitations in certain parts of, uh, they call it Eastern Loudoun County, but it's mostly like Ashburn and, and parts of data centrality in terms of what Dominion can, can offer up, you know, as as re- requirements go um, maybe uh, construction accelerates in Prince William or, or other places. Do you? What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot in there actually. <laughs> um, I, so I guess a couple of things. So you talked about availability zones, and I think that's a great point. Is you know you think about and I've seen a million maps of the three concentric circles, right? You right. know you, you think about okay where where is it in the range? Is it out of the range? How far out? Um, I do think that will drive a much bigger kind of circle, not just in Virginia, but in all the markets as things grow. Uh, and we certainly, you know, talk to, to the hyperscale providers and, and are, are ensuring that we, you know, meet certain needs. Uh, and then as I think you also know, that that, you know, the hyperscalers become the anchors, right? And drive that expansion into other markets. The other piece, which I think you're alluding to, is, is the idea of edge. And I and I say that with a little bit of hesitancy because, you know, defining edge, you know, and and, and different perspectives on what edge really means. Uh, you know, is 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 a whole probably podcast in and of itself. But from our perspective, it's really just what are those kind of secondary markets? What are the satellite locations, and and how do we build uh, and decide where, based on on that? And and I think what you said is very true: is the idea of getting closer to concentrations of of end users. You know, so so we do a lot. I've I've done a number of things around doing some studies on looking at just population densities and and trying to guess. Uh, you know, where there might be future markets, uh, you know, based on population density. But in, in Northern Virginia, we love the idea of having the, the new campus in Prince William County because it does create, uh, you know, a, a, a secondary market or a secondary availability zone. And we're hoping that, that, as you said, as it grows in multiple locations, that we create a distributed model, not just us, but, you know, with our, with our uh, you know, other provi- other providers and other uh, hyperscalers that, that, that extends the vibe of the market overall. Certainly the last piece is, you know, looking at the different power providers and who can deliver power uh, when. Interesting in the last year, that's been a, an ongoing, endless topic of conversation. Whereas if I go back five, six years, the only market we used to worry about power was, was Santa Clara. And, mm-hmm. and now it, we're seeing it in, in almost all the markets where, uh, you know, how do you deliver that and where and when? Um, and the last one, which you didn't touch on, which I think is an interesting one, is, is the community aspect of it. Uh, whereas I think, uh, you know, many years back, it, it wasn't a concern of where a data center went. And, and what it was doing and how it functions. I think today in every market, there's a component of, of community relations that we engage in because there is a heightened concern about what's being built and where, not just from an aesthetics standpoint, the, the look and feel of the building, but you know the environmentals of, of the generators and the power consumption in and of itself. There's some concern around that as well as, as power becomes more constrained. Do communities uh, want data centers that, that do consume a large amount of that power that they may need somewhere down the line.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's fair to say that there may be no place in the country that's more sensitive right now to uh, data center development issues than Prince William County. There's There's been a, a huge discussion yes. going on there about, uh, you know, some of your, your future neighbors, I, I, yes. I think. And it's a good conversation for everyone to have. It's a conversation yep. in Loudon, but just about any place now that you're seeing a substantial data center campus come in, there's a discussion of that. One place in particular where you guys are, are just starting out is in Phoenix, where yes. the, the community concern, about a bunch of things, but primarily water. Talk to me about what you guys are doing in, in Phoenix. I guess it's Mesa uh, yep. out to the east. And uh, how you've you, you know, thought about interacting with the community on the issues that are most of interest to them there.
1: Yeah, and and you mentioned water, which we could start there. But I think you know if we if we talk about community engagement, it's actually that was the one that was, that was top of mind for me. There was actually some meetings going on this week with some some community engagement and outreach in Phoenix, uh, in that region, uh, to talk about the data center business. the The tone is very different, I think. Whereas I think you mentioned before, Prince William County, there's a there's a very negative sentiment from a small group of people. I think in Phoenix, it's more of a uh, thoughtful concern, I would say, is, is okay, what are you going to build? What impact will this have? And have we thought through the variables, um, you know, in doing it? So I have found that it's still a very receptive market. I'm excited from from my perspective and, and you know, as part of my position to be part of those conversations where we can uh, assure people and, and talk about kind of, you know, balancing sustainability and environmentals with economic development in the region. And so I think in Mesa in particular, still very open and, and receptive and positive about the data center uh, industry moving into that, that area, growing in that area, but also just enough of a uh, caution of saying, okay, let's make sure you guys are telling us what you're doing and that we all agree on where we're going. And so, so that part's been positive. The, the last piece of it that you mentioned is the concern with water. For us, to me, that's a very simple solve. We use a closed loop, uh, you know, system, which you know, in some cases, we call it a waterless system. You charge it once, and and you're done. Uh, so you're not consuming water, you know, within the data center. We don't use any evaporative cooling, uh, you know, in that region uh, at all. Uh, and so I think that's the big concern. But but I certainly love, and that then jumps into kind of a whole sustainability conversation. But I love looking at that because I agree that you know I, I still am surprised sometimes when I see. Designs that are evaporative cooling, even in even in regions where there isn't a water concern. You now, I feel like from a future standpoint, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be finding alternatives uh, because I think water will become scarce in in regions that we didn't even think it was scarce in the next five to ten years.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that that's one of those issues where either the industry sort of collectively says, "Yeah, we're not going to do that," in in this market in in terms of uh the cooling systems that use a lot of water or that's just going to get legislated on Uh, i I, mean local communities aren't going to just let you have carbons
1: yep i totally agree and i think i think it's a combination of the two you know certainly we've you know in the us in particular we've tried to get out in front of that um you know regardless of of the market um you know and, and it's something that we tout you know is is the fact that that is our standard design is is to use a waterless system you know not just for for from a sustainability and from an environmental kind of good citizen standpoint but but we we've got a design that's very efficient so so we're able to to both do something that's good for the environment and and you know very very efficient for our business as well
0: now, one of the markets you mentioned before in terms of the power scarcity, which is uh, nothing new there, is Santa Clara, <laughs> where you guys have, I, I have uh, very much enjoyed writing about your project there because it's, uh, it's one of the few pro- uh, data centers in the U.S. that has installed a base isolation system.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: talk a little bit about what that is and, and uh, uh, what's different about uh, your Santa Clara operation.
1: Yeah, and I'll give you the the non-technical layman's version of of our base isolation system, and and uh, for for those that that may know our our head of product, uh, Bruno Berti, I'm sure will will be cringing as I describe it. But uh, that's been a really interesting project for us in Santa Clara. It's been open now for uh, about a year and a half or so, uh, a four-story building in right in the heart of Santa Clara, uh, which, as I think everybody knows, is a very um, high propensity for earthquakes. And so uh, one of the unique things we did with that building was was designed and implemented a base isolation system, which is something that was designed in Japan, who also have uh, earthquake concerns. And what it essentially is is that is the building sits on? It's essentially sitting on. Um, uh, like a, a, a ball joint. It almost looks right. like an upside, upside down uh, knee joint. And I think there's 30 something different uh, systems that are sitting underneath the building and then it has shock absorbers. So what happens is in the event of an earthquake, the building or the ground moves separately underneath the building. The building moves on these, um, you know, I call them disks when I visual- visualize what they are. And then the, the shock absorbers will slow the movement. Um, there's, I think, 36, There's almost a 36-inch moat around the entire building that allows the building to move uh, within that envelope. And and so the idea is, you know, if you compare it to what is kind of standard in the region, all the buildings in that area are built to a very high SIF factor, which means that the building will not fall over. But it also means that everything in the building will move around quite a bit. And so the idea behind our base isolation system is that uh, the building and the equipment in it, Um, will move together separate from the ground in the event of an earthquake and the hope is uh, that the the damage to the equipment, i.e. The, the racks and the gear, will be much, much less in that environment. And, and so it's a very, very cool design. Um, it's, it's one thing that if anyone is ever in that region and gets a chance to go under the building, it's really neat to look at uh, you know, the scale of these you know, 25 foot long uh, shock absorbers and uh, you know, the 36 uh, different plates and see that this building is just sit floating in essence on, on these pieces rather than anchored to the ground.
0: Yeah, I think uh, uh, it's a it's a fascinating topic, and and it's an area where having a, a parent company with a, a lot of experience of building uh, data centers in Japan has probably been uh, a little bit useful. Yes, Santa Clara, there's you know you guys are growing so much in so many places. What are the options in Santa Clara right now, or is that just uh, how do, how do you work that if you're growth minded?
1: Yeah, I mean, is is it can can I use this to ask if anyone has land that they're interested in selling? Uh, <laughs> it's it, the big challenge there is finding land. You know, I I lived in that area for for 25 years, and and there is no greenfield. Literally, there is nothing that is greenfield. Um, you know, you're looking at at brownfield. I think the data center business has has driven the, the the value of land in Santa Clara specifically up uh, dramatically and and so it is extremely difficult to, to to buy land and continue to grow we are still working on it we are, are absolutely committed to growing in that market and and continue to look at where the options are um, but it's not as simple as as any other market really you know if we talk about uh, Phoenix or Texas or uh, Virginia or others you can find land on, on an easier basis not Simple, but much easier than Santa Clara. Uh, so that part has been been challenging. Santa Clara, as we talked about, has continued power uh, challenges because of the growth. Uh, and then we're limited for for many of the the your audience knows, but some may not. Is is that uh, in Santa Clara and Silicon Valley, you know, the the value of being there is is working with Silicon Valley Power. So SVP, as the power provider, serves uh, the Santa Clara market very very specifically. So it's a it's a geographically small footprint overall that you're trying to acquire new land within, because PG and E, as the the other provider for for the remainder or the bulk of of. Uh, Silicon Valley uh, is a much, much more cost uh, inefficient uh, provider. They're a very expensive power provider compared to very, very good pricing with SVP, along with, you know, very, very high quality service um, for the data center providers. And so it's, it's a, (laughs) you're threading the needle, so to speak, but uh, it it is a market that uh, continues to, to see growth, uh, you know, despite all of that. And and I don't think that'll change uh, because of the concentration of tech companies and, and IT, right? in that region that still wants access to, to very specific data center footprints that they're running.
0: I could talk markets all day, but there's one more that I wanted to, <laughs> one more I wanted to ask about, which is uh, the, the hot new market, which is uh, Hillsboro. Yep. Uh, tell me what that the market has been like, why you guys are there and what kind of dynamics you, you see in, uh, in Hillsborough, which is right outside Portland, Oregon.
1: Yep. Yeah. And that's, I, and I, I like it. It's one of my favorite markets, you know, you know, partially because I, I like to visit that area. It's a, it's a very cool area, but um, I, I think it's really interesting from a market standpoint. Um, you know, a, a couple things, and, and why are we seeing growth, or why do we think that we're seeing growth? Um, you know, obviously the, the cost of power um, is is very low uh, relative to some other markets. It's a lot of of uh, sustainable and green power. Um, so there's a lot of hydro, uh, which which we like, as we talk about kind of you know becoming more uh, sustainable sustainably minded in, in t- kind of our power of creation. Um, and so we like that as well. There is availability of land compared to what we just talked about with, with Santa Clara. Uh, you know, there are more opportunities to, to buy uh, bigger pieces of land and grow bigger chunks, I should say. And so we've seen more and more uh, of our competitors move into that area. Um, you know, I can share with you, we've been there, you know, three years or so now with our development project. Um, and in that time, literally right across the street, from us stacked one behind the other we've seen three of our competitors come in and acquire land and begin building uh, directly across the street and so clearly we're not the only ones who see the value in that market Um, and, and I think you know you combine what we talked about with power costs and the value there you know, I think as much as as much as, you know, California and, and Silicon Valley, people say oh, they want to move from that, the proximity to that is also important. And so Portland, uh, you know, you know, is an hour long flight and a 20 minute drive out from the airport to to uh, the Hillsboro area. It, it just is very, very conducive to to growth and expansion on the West Coast. Uh, and then the final thing, which which we're involved in, in part of this as well, I'll go back to what we talked about at the outset of, of this conversation is. The broader NTT piece is the subsea cabling, and so we're seeing more subsea cables landing uh, on the coast in in Oregon, and, and Hillsboro has a very good proximity to that. Uh, and NTT is actually involved in a couple of the subsea cable projects, um, you know, which which again gives us that that breadth of services to offer our clients. But that's exciting as well, right? So now you've started to create a concentration that that will, in my opinion, start to grow as one of the largest anchors on the West Coast that is more cost effective and easier to develop and expand in as opposed to, uh, you know, the other three markets on the West Coast being Silicon Valley, uh, you know, parts of LA, which is a little bit distributed, uh, and Seattle. Um, And so I think this is becoming a sweet spot that offers some of the the, the benefits, whereas those other markets on the West Coast are very challenging.
0: When you guys started looking at the real national footprint, I talked to Doug Adams about this a number of times, very much of like we want to be in all the big markets. Uh, and they were the, the familiar ones. Hillsboro is one of the first where NTT has gone and built largely because there is that land, there's, there's power, there's a sustainable characteristics. Uh, at, at this point, what's your sense of uh, whether we're going to see new places like Hillsborough emerge? Are there other places out there? And how do you think about in this environment, uh, uh, site selection and where to grow.
1: Yeah, I th- I think we will see more markets like Hillsborough coming up, and and I think there's a couple factors that are driving it. One one is simply economics, right? You know, where are there opportunities to grow and build in markets that that might be more cost effective than than Santa Clara or Virginia? You know, the establishment, Chicago being the other one that that is not a low cost market. I think the other thing that that will drive kind of the combination of that is is the economics combined with Getting closer to the secondary hubs. So as we right. talked about earlier, is is the concentration of, of people. Where are the users? Where where are the end users and, and population drivers of that? And so I think there are a number of markets where uh, you know serving the East Coast you know was done primarily out of Virginia and you know New York, New Jersey. Well now why not look at Atlanta or look at um, parts of South Carolina? You know other areas in there. So I think we're going to see some of those kinds of markets being driven because of that because it's it's the economics are good and we can still serve a fairly significant client base uh and be closer to them um and and so i think we'll see you know if i think of one's top of mind to, to kind of keep an eye on i think about you know salt lake city um potentially even denver uh, atlanta is one that i think is is already on most people's radar but but i we haven't seen the the, the same scale that we're seeing in in uh even in hillsborough um, so i think there's lots of those kinds of markets, and and again, I'm I'm trying not to then dip into the idea of kind of tier two markets, right? Which mm-hmm. those those I think are the tier one A's, um, which are the things to watch over the next few years, and then eventually I think we'll start to then talk about tier two, and but tier two is a different conversation of what do you build, uh, you know, yes. do you build at a different scale, and and how do you serve those markets in a, in a cost-effective way as a provider, uh, you know, you know my my prediction is we'll start to see the the twelve. 16 megawatt data center in those tier two markets and and figuring out what the long haul is back to, you know, Virginia or Santa Clara or Hillsboro from, from an anchor standpoint.
0: One of the things I really enjoy about this conversation is as we talk about different markets, you're able to kind of tap into so many different topics that have been the sort of trends that we write about at data center frontier, uh, power, sustainability, growth uh, trajectory, uh, one of the things i always like to do when with a guest like yourself is ask about their data center journey which is how we describe the the way that people found this industry and how they've sort of traveled through it what what things have been like so Steve, what has your data center journey looked like? How, how did you get here?
1: <laughs> yeah, I ask myself that question a lot, actually. How did I get here? Uh, it's it, it's a funny, you know, and I I, I do enjoy telling the story. You know, obviously been in in technology for 25 years and and in marketing uh, and and different product roles uh, with with some of the large uh, you know technology companies early in my career um, and, and I will share with you as, as I think you know we've talked for many years now uh, you know obviously with NTT this is my my third uh, data center company that I've been been working with and and uh, so obviously at this point I'm a data center guy and, and I never thought oh yeah that's a business I want to get into but um, the, the quick story that I'll tell you and, and you talk about how did you get here. I was recruited to Equinix, I believe, probably in 2010. Uh, and I got a call from a recruiter It said, hey, I'm interested and we're looking at, at uh, you know a marketing leader and it's a, a role here and it's this company called Equinix. And, and I will confess, I did not know who Equinix was. Uh, I didn't have a lot of information, but the role sounded interesting. So I went and looked at the website. And uh, at the time, Equinix was really working on um, kind of a platform interconnectivity right. message. And so I spent half an hour looking at the website and between us and, and my Equinix people are gonna call me and, and probably yell at me, I couldn't figure out what they did. And so I went to the interview and I thought I'll talk to these guys. I said, okay, great guys, I looked at your website. I don't understand. What is your business? <laughs> what do you do? And so thankfully I'll never forget one of the guys that I interviewed with early on said, Oh man, yeah, we're we're working on a marketing story, but let me tell you about our business and explain then, you know, the, the idea of co-location. But at the time there was the co- the word co-location was not on their website at all, which was fascinating. And so I joined Equinix and, and had a, a, an amazing few years there, really, really enjoyed, you know, watching Equinix kind of at that stage launch from, you know, being the number two provider to, to just growing, you know, gangbusters and frankly, haven't stopped since uh, and really enjoyed, uh, you know, the business itself started to fascinate me, right? This idea of a leasing model, um, you know, what I got excited about early on was the consistency of growth, knowing that, that this. Seemed like something that was never going to go away, uh, and obviously has has been somewhat proven true. And so, uh, after a few years there, I was actually um, enticed to join Vantage uh, early, early on with Vantage, which was uh, you know turned out to be a great experience as well. You know, kind of taking large company ideas from from Equinix, and you know even going back farther in my career with Cisco and Adobe and others, and saying, okay, we have a very small company. How do we build an identity around this company? And and uh, you know, working with uh, you know those of those of you that know the CEO over at at uh, Advantage, who's still there and and one of the smartest guys in the business, mm-hmm. um, just took that company and and you know we took off from there and uh, I loved that experience of of taking a small company and and uh, really building an identity and growing that company and, and from there then obviously have have uh, joined here over at NTT, which you know is kind of a sweet spot of of uh, you know we are a very very large company but we still have our roots with with the raging wire team and uh, you mentioned Doug Adams earlier and and I have absolutely loved working with Doug and, and the team and uh, you know we have this this large NTT backing behind us but we've got uh, uh, you know still a very close-knit team in the US and and my role uh, you know as you mentioned at the outset my role is has expanded uh, over the last year or so beyond just the US and and now I'm running marketing for the division for the global team and so that's been really Fun to, to bring together uh, some of the team from Europe, and uh, I've got team team members down in South Africa and in India and other parts of the world. And now the challenge is, okay, how do we take some of those ideas from from Vantage and Equinix and other things that I've done in my past, and build that that kind of go-to-market and identity uh, on a global basis? Um, and that's been absolutely fun uh, the last year or so. Some some major major challenges from a branding perspective, and you know, for for marketers out there, you know, can certainly spent a lot of time. My challenge is developing an identity for the data center division within a much larger NTT brand, um, and, and that's a very big challenge. We haven't solved it yet, uh, but something that, that I think is going to be fun to kind of see where we evolve uh, over the next few years, particularly as we mentioned at the outset with the NTT data integration coming as well. So uh, it gets you a little bit. As I said, I'm, I'm a technology wonk, and, and now as much as I uh, you know, don't want to admit it, I'm a data center guy. And, and uh, you know, I, I laugh when I think about that because it was never a, yep, that's a that's the business I want to be in. But uh, you know, moving from Equinix to Vantage and now here at NTT, I, I need to just accept that. And I joke with people a lot that uh, you know I'm I'm a recovering. You know, I need to go to AA meetings to admit my my dependence on the business because I because I do enjoy it.
0: Well, it's wild to think now about of the, the companies that you work for, how large both Equinix and Vantage yep. have become as well. Yep. So It's, uh, uh, it, it's a, a sign of the times, I guess. Well, yeah. Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us here at the Data Center Frontier Show and uh, share your experiences. Uh, so, so thanks so much.
1: No, absolutely. I really enjoyed. it. I always, always have fun when we get a chance to chat.
0: And a thank you to our listeners as well. I appreciate you uh, tuning in to the Data Center Frontier Show, where we tell the story of the data center industry one podcast at a time. Uh, thanks, Steve, and, and we'll see everybody soon.
1: Great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Data Center Frontier Show. You can find the show notes for this episode at datacenterfrontier.com
0: podcast, including links to the resources Rich has
1: mentioned. Be sure to subscribe to the Data Center Frontier show at Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or where you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please tell your friends or share about it on your social channels. You can always find us on the web at datacenterfrontier.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time.